I'm going to be inclined to ramble a little bit today, but before I do that, I wanted to thank Brother Visser. The I've never seen, I, I told Dr. Jim at lunch, I've, I've never seen a fire hose so neatly organized <laughs> as the truth was poured into us. But I'm just telling you, Brother Visser, every statement, and I like the way you do the contrast, God wants this, but not this, or vice versa. I mean, they're truly profound. It takes, I mean, it takes a lot of time to just really think. I'd hear him say it, and I think, I, I could preach on that. And then he makes another statement, like, oh, I could preach a sermon on that, too. But um, it's good stuff. Now, I'm actually talking about this, Brother Visser, because you graciously offered this material to these young people. But you did qualify it. You do not expect them to reproduce it. That's correct. But they, it is okay for them to show something to somebody if they think it would be helpful. And I, I want to caution you because I've seen this happen. And um, you get this stuff and somehow you think you just tweak it and make up your own thing. And it's really the same thing. You're not copying his. You're just reproducing it with the lines drawn a little bit differently or the words stated a little bit differently, that's, that's plagiarism. And I'm just challenging you not, not to let yourself go there. You begin to see God use something and there's going to be a real temptation to somehow make it look like it's yours when it, when it really isn't. You always give credit to the person. I know you've taught, been taught that, but uh, it's just very easy to get that stuff in your toolbox of things that you use and the next thing you know you are reproducing it and handed it out in the Sunday school class and uh, you just you just cannot be doing that um, but it's it's really gracious uh, for him to let you have that and uh, digest it and then be able to process it and make it a part of your ministry as well I appreciate Dr. Jim's vision for this school and his invitation to me uh, when I wasn't able to make it in 2017 because of the snow that hit Interstate 65, but he immediately invited me to come for this year. So it's been on the calendar for a while, and I've been looking forward to being here this week for this meeting, and I've enjoyed it. I, I, just, I just love preaching here. Um, you guys are receptive. You guys want God to speak to you and to respond, and, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate Pastor Van Gelderen's a vision for this ministry and his heart for his young people. Um, I don't know if you really understand how much he cares about what God does through you and where he places you and how he uses you. And I trust that you don't take that lightly. You are privileged to be under the mentorship of some pretty exceptional people that understand what's going on in this world right now. And uh, though we all are navigating territory that's not specifically charted through past experience. Uh, you have people that understand what the issues are and therefore the specific circumstances aren't that big a deal. And by that I mean they aren't what dictate our actions or reactions. I wish I could somehow get you to understand how glorious God is I was just looking at it before I came up here again this, this uh, afternoon because I've got to look at what time it is because I don't want to get carried away. But um, one of the verses that I've chosen for our ministry, and I may have mentioned this here at some time or other, and there's so many verses that say the same thing in the Word of God but that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. One of the reasons it's so important to get a hold of the principles that you've been taught and especially those things that Brother Visser has told you about having power with God and power with men is that God cannot manifest himself through selfish, self-filled vessels. And I trust that what I preach this afternoon does not seem to be in competition with what Brother Visser said, but rather that it is an explanation of some of the things that he said in a more specific context. 
But it was really a process for God to get me, and he is still getting me, to a place where it's not about me. Some things I'm going to say, because I am just chatting with you for a while, we get to some preaching too, but uh, some of the things that I, I'm going to say are embarrassing to say, but they're true. It's been less than 10 years, probably about eight, that I finally got over the idea of having to measure up to man's opinion of what my ministry should be. In other words, that pre pressure from peers to succeed in a way that they thought it would be success or what I thought they would perceive as success. In other words, just numbers. And yeah, understanding spirit-filled truths and yet still that desire for other people to see you in a good light. And it's liberating when that's not what your focus is. You just want to do what God wants you to do and you want him to be glorified and you want him to be seen as God and you want people around you to know that he's God and that he's God alone and there is none else. And if you somehow are held in too high regard in the eyes of people, somehow it takes away from that glory of God. Now, there is a false humility where we stand before men and we wring our hands and we say, I'm nothing, I'm just a poor sinner saved by grace, although all that's true. I don't think we need to present ourselves in that light, but we've got to be careful to know how to communicate that what's going on and what's happening in the ministry and the work that's being done and lives that are being changed is very uniquely the hand of God moving in the midst of his people. It's just so easy to somehow kind of nudge yourself in the middle of that picture and even with words and statements sort of get that glory shifted back to yourself. So these are all things that you're going to learn and it's, it's going to take time. It's going to be a process. And I trust that you recognize that Proverbs chapter 3 is where I'm starting, and in Proverbs chapter 3, we get a significant admonition in the first 10 verses of selflessness. Starts in verse 1, which is much of the theme of Proverbs, pay attention. Do what I tell you to do. It's amazing to me that God's amazing mercy and truth and blessings, his favor, is promised to those who keep his law and keep his commandments. You remember his law and keep his commandments. And we get this whole mindset out there, out there of grace awakening. And, and uh, not having these rules and guidelines and stipulations and expectations. But I'll tell you what. God knows where the boundaries ought to be. And within those boundaries there's great um, latitude to serve him and have his blessing on your life can't be about us. It has to be about what God's desires are, what his expectations are, what his truth teaches us, and what he desires for us. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. In all thy ways acknowledge him. I was spent quite a bit of time with my youngest daughter over Thanksgiving and one of the things we did is took our dogs for a walk at Cascade Park which is near Cloverdale, Indiana. It was the most beautiful I've ever seen and it's a river that runs down through there and in dry season it's just a trickle that comes over these three series of waterfalls but we had had a lot of rain and the water was just gushing over these waterfalls. It was absolutely magnificent has nothing to do with anything I'm saying. I'm just saying it was a really nice setting. But we took our dogs. I've got a, a dachshund. I mean, he could, he could take on any dog in the world. He could take on any bear or lion in his mind. But he's not quite capable. His legs are short and he can't even run well. My daughter has a dog that's primarily a bird dog, probably crossed with black lab. Both of our dogs are rescue dogs. So we don't know really what they are. 
But this bird dog isn't real tall, but uh, from the pulpit here, maybe stands up about like that. And there weren't many people around, and she's done a great job with her dog, me not quite as well. But she takes her dog called Bella off the leash, and Bella can go like crazy. I mean, she can run. And it is just enjoyable growing up on a farm. You just want to see animals free and having a great time, not on a leash, not in a pen. And man, you let her off that leash and she just, it's like lightning. And Winston's like, I can do that too. I can do that too. She jumps over the logs and Winston crawls under them. But what's fascinating about Bella and Mary Lee never raises her voice. I've not learned that technique yet. And sometimes she'll say, Bella, that's far enough. Just like that. And it's like, she's way out there. You can barely hear. How's she going to hear? But quite often, before Mary Lee would say anything, Bella would run like crazy and jump and sniff here and look there. And then she'd stop and look back. And sometimes Mary Lee'd say, that's okay. Or she'd say, Bella, come back. She comes flying back. And she'd run off again. Stay close, Bella. She'd go a little ways. She'd turn back and look. What is she doing? Even a dumb dog knows to look to its master. And my dog, quite frankly, does the same thing. He goes tearing off, and it's not too far. He get 10, 15 yards up the road, and the path and you turn around and look at me. The only difference is if I say Winston come back, he kind of smiles at me and runs ahead a little bit further. Now you'll still stop and look back at me. I'm saying somehow we got to get a hold of this concept that we have a God who loves us. We have a God that has given us much liberty. We have a God who knows what our capabilities are. But we've got to pay attention. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding in all thy ways. Acknowledge him. Start going off, but you turn back and you look and see if his smile is still on his face. We've got to learn to be sensitive to that smile. And I think for the most part, we know when God's smiling and we know when he isn't. We know when he's looking sternly at us and we know when he is frowning. And we should be able to, based on Sunday night's sermon, hear him when he's saying, time to come back. It's far enough. And yet many times we kind of smile and we go on our way still further. And don't heed him like we ought to. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. All thy ways acknowledge him and he shall. It's a promise. Don't have to doubt it. He shall direct your paths. He'll keep you on the right path. On a path where your work and ministry will be profitable. On a path that pleases him. On a path as selfish as it seems from a human perspective. That will give the glory to God and not to us. That's where he wants us. Be not wise. We often leave off verse 7. But be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Constantly glancing back at him, constantly acknowledging him, constantly having an awe and a reverence and respect for God, understanding his chastening hand, understanding his power to use your life in unusual ways if you will stay in his will, understanding all these things, you fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. And one of the things that Solomon does in Proverbs is he speaks in these word pictures and he's not just talking about your physical health, though that's certainly a part of it. He's just saying you're going to be prosperous. It's going to be good for you. If you just keep that in mind, honor the Lord with thy substance, with the first fruits of all thy increase, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses burst out with new wine. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. Because you know what? Whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. What's his desire? His desire is that we would have a complete and total confidence in him. 
that when his chastening hand is upon us, we would trust him. And when those trials come, as we saw in the sessions before lunch, there's a good purpose, there's a good plan in that. And so I want to take us to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, which I sometimes feel like are incompletely taught, though the truths that are often preached to us are good truths and ones that we need to understand and ones that we've heard over and over and over again. Yet I want us to look at them again today. I beseech thee, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I have come to the conclusion, and of course I just taught this in Romans class uh, a previous semester, but I've come to the conclusion that one of the great tragedies of local church ministry is that we are pastoring people that aren't surrendered. And they're not necessarily bad people. And I don't even think they necessarily intend to be rebellious people. But as was expressed this morning, we just really can't wrap our mind around what surrender is. We come to a crisis in our life and we are brought to yieldedness through whatever process God uses to get us there. And in that moment, we think, okay, we're surrendered. And we are preaching, of course, from this passage of Scripture that the only active verb there is the presenting of ourselves. The others are passive. In other words, God works out in our lives the nonconformity and the transforming of our mind. If we would just get to the point where we would surrender the choice, young people, that we need to make is to be surrendered to God. If we are struggling with worldliness, we do not need to preach on worldliness. We need to preach on surrender to God. If we're struggling with our mind being conformed to the world and not transformed, we need to preach on surrender because that's the decision that needs to be made. We struggle with our worldliness and we struggle with our selfish thinking and don't realize that at the very root of the issue is that I'm not surrendered. It just reveals that I'm filled with myself. And the plea of God here based upon our salvation is that we would surrender so that we would experience, that we would test and find to be true that his will is good, acceptable, and perfect. I don't think, though it is often the result, that the admonition of the Apostle Paul here is surrender so that you can find the will of God. I think his admonition to surrender is so that you can experience that God's will is good. And Christians and adult Christians and good Christians and faithful Christians go through their Christian life never really experiencing the fullness that God has for them, the power that God has in store for them, the dynamic ministry that God can use them to accomplish because we are not surrendered to him. We just aren't. We just don't get it. We don't feel like we're in open rebellion. We don't feel like we're in blatant disobedience. We're not living immoral lives. But we haven't surrendered. And God's plea here through the Apostle Paul's pen is if you're saved, then you need to surrender. It's just logical. It's just sensible. Why would you be saved to live your life? Why would you not accept the salvation of God because he has purchased you, he owns you, and he's the one that knows the beginning and the end. He's the one that designed you and created you and gave you your personality and your abilities. Why does it make sense to do anything except live our lives and surrender to him? It just Nothing else makes sense. She might prove that what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, it's your reasonable service. I've told this story pretty much every year in Romans class and it gets misrepresented and makes people nervous. But I surrendered in college. I remember God speaking. I, I think there is a surrender. It's not just a casual this or that and maybe it's in a camp uh, that you went to and maybe it's in a college session somewhere. But uh, at least for me, Man, when God's hand began to be on me, and I began to sense him working in my life, I remember where I was sitting at Calvary Baptist Church in Watertown, Wisconsin. 
I don't remember the preacher was Wally Beebe or Jack Van Impe back when they were a little bit more on track than they are today. But I'm pretty sure it was Wally Beebe. I don't know what he preached on, but boy, the invitation came. And I was clearly impressed. If I did not yield my life to God, God would pass me over. And as best I knew as a college student, I yielded myself to God. I came forward. I was sitting back here about eight rows back. Came forward, knelt right here beside the pulpit at the platform during that invitation. And the prayer was basically this, Lord, I, don't, I know I don't have much. But if you can use anything I have, it's yours. And what we don't realize when we come to a decision like that, a point in time where we surrender, that we're thinking specifically in light of our circumstances at the moment. For me at that time, I'm not going to take time to get it from you, but the Romans class this year guessed it right, and I taught it in my high school Bible class, and they guessed it right. What am I thinking about? I'm thinking about what am I going to do with my life? Lord, I surrender. How am I going to pay my college bill? Lord, I surrender. And who am I going to marry? Lord, I surrender. And those things were surrendered, and God took care of the college bill and directed me in what to do and gave me a wife. And then we got into ministry, and I'm going to keep this the short version. But it just really got weird. Put in a lot of hours at that first ministry, and I was not a pastor or a youth pastor. I was trained to be a pastor, evangelist, and I wanted to be an evangelist. I'm still not there, but I'm working toward it. But I'm a school administrator. And I'll tell you, putting a pastor behind a desk administrating a school is making him miserable. And that was talked about this morning. It just makes no sense. Sometimes the things that God does, you look at it like, what is this about anyway? But in the midst of all of that, the finances were tight. The church had fired their previous pastor. The previous school administrator had left. I was there administrating the school, teaching in the classroom all day long, driving a bus to bring kids to school opening up the daycare before school, putting in a lot of hours, and it was absolutely amazing to me they were paying me to do it. I mean, at, just, at that time, that just boggled my mind. Getting paid to do what I love to do. Well, sort of. Pastor finally came, and church started growing, and my responsibility settled down to the administration of the school, teaching and running the youth group. And at some point, with things that I can't explain, but the finances were still tight, if there wasn't enough money to pay salaries, my salary was withheld. The pastor said, it's your responsibility to make the school pay for itself. If it's not paying for yourself, you're not getting paid. If there still wasn't enough money, my wife's salary got withheld. I sat through business meeting after business meeting, which were monthly in that church, and the pastor said, we're doing great. But my wife and I didn't have our salaries. He never said anything. We went there early in the morning. We came, stayed late at night because he stayed there to work to get that ministry going forward. That was my perspective. We were putting in hours. But as he stayed, the secretary stayed to take care of things that he needed taken care of. And I felt like I needed to stay to make sure that his testimony was protected because nobody else was around. We finally went and talked to him. I said to my wife, well, we can't keep doing this. We were going to the church at quarter to six every morning, leaving about 930, eating supper about 10 o'clock at night and doing it all over the next day. I said, we can't keep doing this. So we went and talked to him and said, we just can't keep staying up late at night staying here at the church. And he said, I'm not telling you to stay at the church. I said, I know, but you're here. Secretary's here, and I want to protect your reputation. I mean, that's the way we're taught in college. That's what you do. So I'm not telling you you have to stay. That was the end of the conversation. Came to church that next morning. That was on a Thursday. Came to church on Sunday morning, that next Sunday morning. He said to me on the way into church, I want to talk to you and your wife after church. I said, sure. 
Thought maybe he had processed what we'd said and had come up with a plan. I didn't know. I walked into his office. There were eight men sitting in the office. Four deacons, four trustees. They were the school board. He did the obligatory prayer and he looked me straight in the eye and said, this man has accused me of adultery. And I'm going to tell you that blew me away. And I'm going to say it now and I'm going to say it again because you got to get this. This is not about ministry being miserable. This is about God working in a proud, arrogant young man's life to bring him to surrender. But it was confusing to me. My wife was expecting, he had told me that it was lewd and inappropriate for an expecting woman to be teaching in the classroom. I called other major ministries. He told me that's the way it was everywhere. I called major ministries like Marquette Manor and and, uh, Memorial Baptist in Rockford and Calvary Baptist in Bloomington, Illinois. And they all said, no, we've got teachers that teach right up until they have their babies. Well, I was dumb enough to go in and tell them that. That didn't go over well. So things started deteriorating is what I'm saying. So my wife and I decided not to renew our contracts. I was a school administrator, so I signed a contract every year, and she did as well, and we didn't sign our contracts. We didn't know what we were going to do, but he called me in the office and said, well, what are you planning to do? Where are you going? I said, I don't have any ID. He said, well, what offers have you had? I said, I haven't had any. Well, that week I got a phone call from a church that I ended up going to. They called and said, we're looking for a youth, youth pastor. Would you consider it? At that point, it seemed pretty good. So I went and preached, and when I got back from preaching, he called me in his office said, you lied to me. He told me he didn't have anywhere to go, and you were just preaching down in Sterling, Illinois. I said, yes, sir, but when you asked me, I hadn't received that phone call. I had no plans of anything. Felt like my reputation had been tarnished. My finances had been robbed. My ministry had been destroyed. I went to that other church, preached. They asked me to come back and candidate. I candidated, got a 100% vote. Went to them as an angry, confused, bitter youth pastor. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because I believe it complements what Brother Visser has been telling you. We make a decision to surrender, and it is what we perceive in our mind for it to be. But things in life change and stuff happens. I went to that new ministry July 1st, and the next spring, the different youth pastors in the state of Illinois called me and said, hey, Zemp, we're going to, to the wilds to a youth workers conference. We'd love to have you go. We got one more seat in the van. Might as well. But I administered for nine months, angry, confused. Dr. Ken Hay preached on that Friday night from Romans 12, 1 and 2, and had us in the fireside room there at the wilds and preached to us. We'd heard Ken Hay and Les Olala and some of the great youth workers of that day and all the youth ministries and the uh, positive action material that they had, the protein material and different things that they had. And youth pastors were excited, but Ken Hay preaches on Friday night on surrender. And he says, if we ask our teenagers to give their life to the Lord, we ought to do the same. And he had this great big pile of sticks over on the side and a fire going in the fireplace. It was early spring and still cold in the mountains there where the wilds was. And he said, I'm going to ask you as youth pastor to go pick up a stick and throw it in the fire, indicating your total yieldedness to God. Everybody in that fireside room went forward except a youth pastor's wife with a baby in her lap and me. And I'm just telling you, I was confused, and this is what I want you to understand. I was confused. I had surrendered. I wanted to serve God. I had surrendered. I wanted God to use me. I had surrendered. So I didn't understand what more God wanted from me. Invitations over. I went and made a beeline to Ken Hay, but all the youth workers and wives came to thank him and to talk to him. And I got to him, and I said, I need to talk to you. And he went like this, kind of like Duh. I said, no, I need to talk to you. He said, "Uh, these people are here. We've hosted them all week. They're here to thank me. And I'm not going to push them aside to talk to you. I'm not going to speed up conversations to talk to you. He said, I'm going to talk to them. Let them say what they have to say. If you're still here, I'll talk to you when they leave. It was midnight. 
I was still there, young people. You see, there was something in my heart that, that caused me to know that I, I wanted God to use me, and I knew where I was isn't where, where God wanted me. But I didn't know what was wrong. Took me back to his office, and we talked until about 2.15. He talk, told me about Otto Koning's pineapple story. I'd not personally heard of it, but it was a popular story. He drew a cross-section of a pineapple on a piece of paper and put an altar in the middle, and he wrote all the things that I told him had happened in the ministry. Didn't have my salary. Had my reputation ruined. Had my wife falsely accused and attacked. Had the ministry that had worked for taken away from me had been falsely accused by that pastor of having inappropriate relationships with teenage girls. I'm telling you, these things hurt. But the problem wasn't the pastor. The problem was me. He said, have you ever surrendered? <laughs> I don't know how I responded to him, but I can just about imagine my personality. Yeah. I told him yes in college and told him, said it doesn't sound like it. My finances, my reputation, my ministry, my wife's reputation, said it doesn't sound like it. And in that moment it began to occur to me that surrender was far beyond what I understood it to be in college. And that God is constantly bringing into our lives those circumstances and those trials that reveal to us those areas in our life where we're still, it's still about self and it's still about me. Things that I'd never anticipated. And then he said something else that really irritated me, but I was really an irritable person at that point in my life. He said, I won't pray with you. Wasn't that what counselors are supposed to do? Pray with you? Brother Visser, aren't you supposed to pray with people? He said, I won't pray with you. He said, I'll pray for you, but I won't pray with you because this has to be a real decision. And of course, words like that are offensive because the decision in college was real. I mean, I sat there under conviction, confident that if I did not respond to the invitation, God would never use me. But I left his office about 2.15, 2.30 in the morning and wandered the campus of the wilds until 5.18. Had one of those fancy, not digital watches, it had the hands on it that went around, but it, 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 it shone at night. And I looked at it and it was 5.18 when I finally knelt by a tree. There were two things I really struggled with. My reputation, it, it really didn't matter to me that much my ministry but money was a big deal to me I'm sure it was a God and the things that had been said about my wife were hard but when I knelt at that tree young people I'll tell you I said God it doesn't matter I just want to be used it doesn't matter Forget about the money. Forget about the reputation. Forget about all that. It doesn't matter. I just want to be used. I think we left at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was pretty quiet on the way home, so much so that the others who are talking about, we're going to get this material and we're going to try this program, we're going to do this. And they said, Zemp, you're kind of quiet. I said, yeah, I'm just thinking. And I was. I had no idea if I should go back and resign. Didn't know if I'd quit. Didn't know what I was supposed to do. Went through the formalities Sunday with the youth group and Sunday night with the training union time before church that we had back then. And went through the week and started Monday teaching the Bible class and doing stuff I was supposed to do in our Christian school and Went through my routine with not much life, with not much sense of what I was really supposed to do, struggling with it. 
Wednesday night service came, went through that like I was supposed to, doing what I was supposed to do with the teenagers. Thursday, went to school, taught, came home at noon. My wife said, guess who called? <laughs> she asked questions like that a lot. Like, how am I supposed to know? I don't know who. Mrs. Schultz. She was the secretary at the ministry that I had been at. What does she want? I don't know. She wants you to call her. I called and she said, I've been going through the finances. Both the pastor and the secretary, by the way, had disappeared from that ministry about four months apart, the pastor first and then the secretary. She said, I've been going through books and I see that we owe you money. You, you got some paychecks we haven't paid you. And the best part of this story, young people, is I said, yes, I'm aware of that. Please don't worry about it. You guys are going through a lot. Just keep it. She said, no, we're going to pay you, but we don't have it all right now. I said, no, please, Mrs. Schultz, understand. It's okay. I didn't go into any details about what the decision I just made a Saturday before, less than a week ago, or Friday night before. I said, I said, just keep it. You guys are going through a tough time. She said, well, I'm telling you, we're not going to keep it. It's going to be coming to you. And we'll send the rest when we can. That money came within the next week. And just a few weeks later, the other half came. Down payment for a house. Something I never thought we'd probably have with the salary I was making at that time. They started inviting me to come back and preach and fill the pulpit. They invited me to come that spring and preach the graduation for the Christian school teenagers that I'd worked with ministry was restored reputation was restored my finances were restored but the best part of it is it didn't matter it didn't matter and I could say that with a clear conscience I'm saying to you young people that God will take you on a journey that you may not expect the responsibility we have is to surrender the responsibility is to understand that God's will is perfect it's acceptable it's good the responsibility we have is to understand that only by surrender can we have the power of God on our lives. And that's where the Apostle Paul is going here in Romans chapter 12. And I don't think it's emphasized or taught enough. He's not talking about the fact that now you're saved, you ought to surrender. He's going somewhere with it. And only by surrender can God do what he wants to do with our lives. So you might look at this and sometimes when people relate what I've said, they relate how miserable ministry is and that's not the point, it's how good God is. To bring us into the exact circumstances that we need to face ourselves and look at ourselves in the mirror and see what it is that we're still hanging on to. Even though we thought we surrendered and even though we were sincere in what we surrendered, there are areas that we don't recognize, that we don't know, that we're not experiencing yet. How many of you here in the college have children. How many of you are married? Yeah, same guy that raised his hand in Romans class. It's always got to be one of them, you know. You think marriage is going to be one of the most glorious things that ever happened to you? It is. But you're going to learn some things about yourself. Just about the time you think you got that all figured out, you're going to have kids. You can learn some things about yourself. I remember the first time my son had 104 fever. My wife is cool as a cucumber. I'm like, you know, what's, what's going to happen? Is he going to die? What, what, what? It's called surrender, young people. God knows what he's doing, but he's pointing out to you areas where you're sensitive, where you're weak, where you're not willing to trust him completely. I wish I could say that experience I just told you about was the last experience I've had, but God about every five, six, seven years does something pretty dramatic in my life to say, hey, are you still surrendered? Yeah, I did that back in college. Except I've got a whole lot better attitude now. It's like, well, maybe not. I mentioned the other night that I'm older than I used to be. 
I still preach with energy, at least I think I do. I tell myself every time, you can just get up and talk. There's nothing great about yelling or getting all passionate. But it's who I am. But it takes me a little longer to recuperate. They call that getting old, I guess. It's kind of fun, but not that much. My mother says, don't hurry up about it. She's going to be 98 in May. Things happen. Diseases come. Accidents occur. My wife and I lost a son when, after Stephen was born two years later. Eight months pregnancy, stillborn. Stuff happens. It's not because God is mean. It's because he knows what he has to do to get his servants where he can use them. I can take time to tell you things that have happened in the church ministries. Did you know, folks, that not everybody loves you? And some of them that say they do show it in very unusual ways. And you can get focused on that and think that people are miserable and think that people are unreasonable and you can get fixated on people and their personalities and the problems that they cause you. We, we say as pastors, ministry is great if I could get rid of the people. Now I'll tell you, Christian school ministry is a, it's a blast if you didn't have parents to deal with. But that's part of it. And God knows that he can't use people that are self-dependent. Where God is going with this challenge in Romans is this, pay attention now, for I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. There must be salvation. If you're not saved, you need to get saved. There must be surrender. If you're not surrendered, you need to surrender as best you know how today and continue to live in the spirit of surrender as God brings trials into your life, recognizing that he wants you to stand and look in the mirror and see yourself for what you are. You're selfish. You're fleshly. And you're easily deceived by the deceiver. But what he really wants and where he's going with it is so that you can be humble. And many do not understand the plea for humility here. But I believe it is because God is setting the stage for you to be powerful. Save people that are surrendered. And save people who are surrendered and learn to walk in humility before their God. God is going to gift them with his grace, with his supernatural enablement. And he's going to start using you to do things that you thought you would never, never, never do. You're going to see people respond and you're going to see things happen as you preach God's word and as you give out a witness and as you teach your Sunday school classes. And you're going to stand there in amazement until one day the devil whispers in your ear and says, you're pretty good, aren't you? And you whisper back, yeah, I'd already thought about that. And in that moment, you lose your power with God. As I said, I'm an aspiring evangelist. I think eventually I'll get there. But shortly after I got out of college, I was invited to preach a week of meetings in Searcy, Arkansas. And I preached. I had to prepare every message every day. I mean, I didn't have anything in store. Thursday night, I preached on surrender. Gave something of a testimony. Gave an invitation, wasn't used to the South. People had responded every service to the preaching and the invitation. But the invitation given Thursday night in a fairly large church, it's certainly a lot larger than the churches I'd been in otherwise. Every person came forward except one lady with a baby in her lap. What's, what's with ladies with babies in their laps? How come they don't have to go forward? I mean, I mean, the auditorium emptied out. They all filled up the aisles, and it wasn't that good a message. It really wasn't. And the thought hit me. Finally, God's found somebody to replace Billy Graham. I'm telling you, Brother Van Gelderen, we are so filled with self. I mean, I shouldn't say we, you're probably not, but 
You know, I am just so filled with self. It's like, really? Are you serious? You preach one revival and you think you're Billy Graham or better than him? I'm telling you, this is not an exaggeration. God did not use me for five years. Preached in chapel in our Christian school because I got to schedule that. The pastor I was working with never let me preach when he was gone on vacation. My home church never asked me to preach. Nobody ever asked me to come and speak to their youth group. I'm not making this up, young people. You want to make a preacher miserable. Make him sit in a classroom and behind a desk. I'm telling you, we've got to get this surrender thing down. We've got to get it down. We've got to get it down. We've got to understand that when we surrender, we then must, by the grace of God, walk before him humbly, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think soberly according as God had dealt to every man the measure of faith. Because as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace. The enablement of God on us. There's nothing more amazing than to be in step with God, humbly walking with him, fully surrendered to him. You open your mouth, and something amazing happens. You pray a prayer, and God answers in an amazing way. You do some ministry, and something actually dynamic happens that a farm boy from central Wisconsin could never pull off. That's me, by the way. And you begin to see God move, and you begin to see God work, and you see a church grow, or you see somebody surrender, or you see a marriage restored, or, or, or in some other way, God works and does something amazing. And if you think for a minute that it's you, you're done. Dr. Bob Taylor, early on when I went to Indiana, probably 27 years ago, preached at a pastor's meeting. He preached on Peter walking on the water and sinking. And he made five applications at the end of that message. The one I remember is this, a failure that humbles you is far better than a success that makes you proud. I'm telling you, young people, there's going to be things that appear to be a failure. But in that moment, it is God's gift to you to reveal to you that there's an area that you need to surrender there's a weakness that you need to yield to God. There's a cry from God for dependency upon him. To learn one more time to come before him and humbly say, God, it's not about me. It's about you, whatever path you choose. It's okay, I'll trust the Lord with all my heart and, and I'll, I'll acknowledge you in all the ways and trust you to, to direct my paths. Paul is about to reveal to the church the gifting of the church whether prophecy or exhortation or teaching or ministry or whatever it is and it is in that gifting that the church is powerful it's a dynamic army that the devil can't stand against as we have ourselves yielded to him and God begins to use us in the gifting that he has blessed us with Things happen that we never hoped would happen, never, that we never thought could happen. And in those moments like me, you're going to think, oh, I'm the next adult Sunday school class teacher. You know, young people, just because somebody from your home church came to you and said, wow, that was an amazing message, doesn't mean you're an amazing preacher. All it means is you've got an amazing God and gracious people in your church. And God's heart's desire, and he's not going to change his mind on this, is that he would know, that, he, that people would know he's God in all the earth. And that there is none else. David's cry when he faced Goliath was this, that Israel may know that there's a God in Israel. And your cry must be in the ministries where you go, that my people would know that there's a God here. 
we on a somewhat regular basis now hear people walk into our church and say, this is different. So I said, different. And I say, what do you mean? I said, well, your church is friendly, but we walked in and we knew God was here. Yeah, well, that's one of my skills is having to make sure people, people walk in and they know that God's here. I am in support of this college, not because my son is here. I'm in support of this college because I came to a Monday chapel. And I heard young people give testimony one right after another of what God was doing in their life. And how souls were being saved. And how the young people here were being used by God. And I thought that's what I've been looking for. Not kids that are wrapped up in themselves. Not kids that want to live somewhere on a beach. Not kids somewhere that want uh, rooms that have suites that have personal restrooms or whatever. I want kids that love God and are surrendered to him regardless of the cost. That's what I want. That's what God is raising up here. So don't get discouraged in the journey. Brother Visser laid out phenomenally a lot of things that God's going to do to work out his will in your life, bring you to surrender so that you can have what? Power with God and power with men. And in that moment, some of you are going to think you're quite something. And God will take you to the woodshed and say, not so much. What you forgot is you've got a God who's quite something. Fix your gaze on him. Father, help us. Help us to understand the passion of this message. It's something that I've lived and walked through, and many of us have. So we've learned to let you bring us to surrender time and time again. Though our decision was sincere when we made it at camp or in college or wherever, Lord, you have to show us, you have to show us over and over that surrender means every area of our life, every avenue. Thank you for being faithful and thank you for being patient. Now, Lord, we know we've given the invitation for surrender Maybe there's some here that just really haven't let go of some things or are confused because of something that's happened or have even let bitterness creep into their heart because it hasn't all turned out the way they thought it should or would. Lord, would you help us to just kneel before you and trust you to do in our life what's good for us in the moment that we are currently living. Help us to live in the present, yielded to you. In Christ's name I pray.